Uh, well, again, welcome to RUF. Uh, and if you don't know me, I'm Oliver, the campus minister. And I'm super thankful that all of you are here. Um, RUF really is uh, a place for every single person on campus. Like, no matter where you are with Christianity, we are a Christian campus ministry. Um, whether you're, you feel like you're totally convinced uh, or you feel really skeptical and you're just wondering, is, is there any reality to this whole Christian thing? Uh, we're glad you're here, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself in that spectrum. And uh, what, what is RUF? What are we trying to do? Uh, RUF's not here to just try to make you a little bit more moral or just to kind of throw some God spice into your life. Uh, we're here to help you know Jesus, uh, because we believe knowing Jesus changes everything. And that's, that's really what we've been framing this whole series through Philippians this semester around, that the idea that connection to Jesus by faith, through grace, just radically changes our life. Like, it changes how we think about community. It changes what our goals are. It changes how we handle suffering. All of that is radically changed if we're connected to Jesus by faith through grace. And so uh, this semester, or this week, um, we're going to look at a passage that is almost kind of the, the climax of that in this letter. And those themes are going to continue, but uh, it's one of those passages where the person and work of Jesus just shines so brightly, almost more brightly than anywhere else in the letter. Uh, and it's a passage that if we, if we really take it in, it will radically change us. So uh, look there in your handout or, or flip on your own Bible uh, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I'll read that and then pray for us and we'll begin digging into it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active uh, that wherever it is read and preached, your spirit is present, convincing uh, us of the beauty of Jesus and his grace towards us and your love towards us in Christ. And so we, we pray for an overflow of your spirit this evening as we wrestle with uh, what Paul is pointing us to on this letter that he wrote to the Philippians. We pray that, uh, that, that these things would take root in our lives and would bear fruit and would glorify you through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, what is your mindset? What, what's the filter 
the framework that you push all your circumstances through. The mantra you have that, that drives how you respond to what life throws at you. I, I'm sure a lot of us here come with, with a different mindset, a different framework. Some of us uh, are going to be maybe on the more pessimistic side. Uh, going back to uh, the show I talked about last week, Ted Lasso. This better not be a spoiler. Are you finished, Dory? Are you finished with season one? It's not really a spoiler. It's not. It's not. Basically, uh, at the end, the last episode is called The Hope. It's the hope that kills you. And basically, the whole reason it's titled that is there is a popular like, British football slogan. I think it's actually a real thing that like, a lot of people would say uh, that it's the hope that kills you. That it's really kind of dangerous to, to trust, uh, to put too much stock in your team that they're actually going to win. Uh, so the only way for a lifelong fan to like, really stick with their team is just to kind of have this pessimistic attitude. That like, disappointments uh, are, are going to happen uh, and you should just expect life to be full of them. But in the show, Ted Lasso, who's this American coach who came over to uh, coach, American football coach who came to coach British football, um, he, he's hearing this phrase and he's talking to the players and he says... I disagree. It's the lack of hope that comes and get you. You see, I believe in hope. I, I believe in belief. Where I'm from, we have a saying too. Do you believe in miracles? And, and in the moment, his little speech, it, it sounds very inspiring. There's like this gentle piano music playing in the background. And you're like, yeah, I believe in belief. But then you walk away from it, and, there, and there's still kind of this, this emptiness and this almost cringiness to just that blind optimism. I recently read a, a book called Atomic Habit. It's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a self-help book a bit. Um, and the author spends a lot of time talking about mindset. And, and he writes this, you can make hard habits more attractive. Let me pause there. Can you guys hear me okay? You can hear me okay? Cool. I never know how well this thing's working. And I know Matt used to wait for the train to pass. There's a bug on me? Maybe he just wants wants to hang out. Oh, got it. Stink bug. Stink bug. Anyway. So there's this book, Atomic Habits. This guy writes this, talking about mindset. You can make hard habits more attractive if you learn to associate them with a positive experience. Sometimes all you need is a slight mindset shift. For instance, we often talk about everything we have to do in a given day. We have to wake up early for work or for class. You have to make another sales call for your business. You have to cook dinner. Now imagine just changing one word. You don't have to, you get to. You get to wake up early for work. You get to make another sales call for your business. You get to cook dinner. By simply changing one word, you shift the way you view each event. Your transition from seeing these behaviors goes from burdens into them being opportunities. And there's some truth and wisdom to that. So much of uh, our frustration and our anxiety and our sadness in life comes from how we're interpreting events from our mindset. And in, in Paul in Philippians, he's thinking about that too as he's talking to this people that he's been urging to be unified 
uh, and to have humility that will cultivate that unity uh, in, in the face of the opposition that they're encountering out in the world. Paul wants to give them this mindset, but he doesn't do any of the stuff that we've just heard. He doesn't offer them a slogan, some cheesy thing like, you know, all you need is love or just why can't we all get along? He doesn't say, well, you just need to think you have to, not you, or you need to think you get to, not you have to. And he doesn't go a cynical route either. He doesn't say, well, you just got to accept the fact people are terrible, life's terrible, just suck it up and deal with it. Rather to urge them to enter into more humility to have this new mindset, he points them to a person, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's mindset here, it's not a catchy slogan. It's not a psychological technique. It's something that flows directly from the person and work of Christ. It, Paul is pointing them to not just an idea, not just a concept, but a historical person and historical events that can totally change their mindset through the the union that they have with Christ by faith. Jesus's person and work is the only thing that has the power to change us and to truly humble people. His death and resurrection, though, it's not only the door that opens up that possibility, but it actually sets the pattern of what that looks like. And so Paul With this in mind, he's calling them. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he breaks this mindset into two movements, humiliation and exaltation. And that's how we're going to frame walking through this passage this evening. That our, our connection to Jesus and these two movements of humiliation and exaltation empowers us and shapes us to live a beautiful and humble life. In, in Jesus, we have a mindset that, that is far more in touch with reality than any other mindset we could come up with. And so let's first consider the movement of Christ's humiliation. So look back at verses 6 through 8. We read there, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Some of that language at the beginning is, is a little, little confusing. He, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What, what is going on there? What is Paul talking about? Well, What Paul is doing is framing Jesus' person and work in contrast to the other most important man in history, Adam. Many of you have maybe heard some version of the story that the Bible has of the first human beings, Adam and Eve. What happened there? What went wrong? What were Adam and Eve tempted with? Well, we read in Genesis 3, that the serpent, Satan, says to the woman, and to Adam as well, who's just standing there saying nothing, you will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of this tree that he told you not to eat of, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan was tempting them 
with the possibility of being like God, of being God's equal, of having the insider knowledge that God alone has, of being the master of their own destiny. And this attitude lives on in the children of Adam, us today. We want to be like God. We're, we're limited creatures bound by space and time, and yet we want to be involved in everything and excel at everything. We want to be on the top and calling the shots. And this is why we struggle so much with humility. Paul, Paul is having to remind them again and again and work through this issue with the church and encourage them to put their interests, put others' interests above their own because he knows their default mode is grasping after equality with God. When you're doing that, when you're trying to climb to the top, others aren't just fellow sinners that you're there to serve and love, but they become rivals. And yet we see what happened here with Jesus in his state of humiliation, that he does the exact opposite of what Adam did in the garden. Rather than grasping on to the equality with God, he is made in the likeness of men. He becomes a servant. He steps down the ladder instead of climbing up it. And it's particularly amazing and ironic because Jesus was God. Before Jesus took on a human nature, the Son of God was with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was of the same substance, same power. He is co-equal, co-eternal. All authority and power was his. All wisdom was his. All things were created through him and for him. And this is what a lot of the kings of the ancient Near East wanted to claim for themselves. Uh, they said that they were God or they had some kind of connection to the vine so that they had the right to, the rule, to rule. And with this godlike status, others were supposed to serve them. And they would get all the glory and the honor and wealth. And they weren't about to let go of that. And I, I think if we had that same opportunity, we would do the same thing. If we were co-equal with God, all-powerful, all-knowing, we would not lay that down. We, we would use it to make the world serve us, to make the world revolve around us. And yet Jesus emptied himself, took the form of a servant, even humbled himself to the point of death. And again, in doing this, uh, Jesus is not only accomplishing our salvation, but he is communicating something so profound about life and the world and how God designed it. Life is not a game of thrones. Joy and peace and happiness, it, it, everything that we are wanting and desiring is not found by vying for the top. I mean, think about this. The Son of God is leaving the top. Why would he do that? Because life is found in serving in humility. The way up is down. True power is found in laying things down. The most significant event in history and redemption was because the king of the universe became a servant, laying down his life for his friends. But unfortunately, our, our culture right now is just so fixated 
on power. We think raw power is the only way to change the world, and so we're just desperately grasping at it. We, we wouldn't dare enter into a discussion and, and compromise with others because compromise would make us vulnerable. But if the Son of God chose to be a servant, to empty himself, to die in order to redeem humanity, why, why do we think we can impact the world or do anything of consequence when we're heading in the exact opposite direction? I love how Andy Crouch uh, talks about this in his book, Strong and Weak. There's a quote there from it. I'm going to read a longer quote. He, he writes, What we truly admire in human beings is not authority alone, or vulnerability alone. We seek both together. When authority and vulnerability are combined, you find true flourishing. In the grip of idols, we believe that our problem is not enough authority. Life becomes a quest to acquire enough authority to manage and to minimize our vulnerability. The risks are all around us. They're obvious and endless. The terror of nature, the hostility of others, the inexorable approach of death. To people who see the world this way, gaining authority without vulnerability, that is the great pearl of price, great price, something you would sell everything to obtain. But Christians do not lack authority. In Christ, we have all the authority we need and more. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, all things are yours. But what unlocks that authority is the willingness to expose ourselves to meaningful loss, to become vulnerable and woundable in the world. For this, too, is what it means to bear the divine image. If the one whom through all things were made and spoke into being a world where he himself could be betrayed and wounded and killed, if he created that kind of scenario, then what is missing to become more like him is not ultimately more authority. It's more vulnerability. It's awesome that, that many of you have positions of authority at Wofford. Um, and it's great that I think a lot of you here probably as, aspire to some kind of leadership, whether it's here right now in Greek life, uh, in other campus organizations at RUF, um, in your future careers. Power and responsibility is good. Um, but for those of us who have roles of authority or or seeking after them, what are you hoping to get out of them? Why do you want them? Do you, do you want to be the president uh, of your sorority or fraternity or top of your class academically or, or small group leader or get into the best med school or grad school um, to serve others? Or are, are you doing it? Am I doing it? Uh, I'm in on this too, because uh, we're hoping to gain more power and authority for our own benefit, for our own comfort, for the building up of our own honor and glory and wealth. What would it look like instead for us to bring vulnerability into the roles of, of influence and authority that we find ourselves in? I think, I think certainly one way is just by stopping looking at everyone else through this lens of how can they benefit us? How can they help us pad our resume? How can they get us connected to the right people so that we'll be successful in the future? And instead seeing them as, as fellow image bearers that we're called to serve. I think, I think also some of you are, are 
are on the other end very anxious about life and struggling uh, with life in college and thinking about the future because you're fearing landing at the bottom of the ladder. You're, you're desperately afraid that you, you might be like the only person that, that gets to the end of your time of Wofford and, and graduates and you're like, I still don't know what I'm doing for the rest of my life. You're, you're afraid of being put in this position that feels vulnerable and uncertain. But if you stop and look around once you find yourself in that position, and I know I've experienced this, you will find Jesus very nearby. Weakness, vulnerability, loss, uncertainty, that is where Jesus in his incarnation lives and moves and has his being. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are not crushing it at life because Jesus is there with them. So many of us, we're, we're grasping after more power and authority when vulnerability and humility is what we need more than anything. And in Jesus, we see that authority and vulnerability perfectly combined. That is why he is so compelling. But it is important, as I've already been influencing, to know that authority is good too. Though this Jesus mindset is focused on humility and vulnerability, Christianity is not this pessimistic, defeatist thing. There's not only a movement of humiliation in Jesus' life and the mindset that comes from that, but as our second point states, there's a movement of exaltation. And Paul goes on to that next movement in verses 9 through 11. Look there. He writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this, this language here of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, it almost certainly is alluding to Isaiah 45, where we read Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, saying this, it's there in your bulletin, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. In saying that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Paul is saying the most radical thing you could say ever about a human being. It's a claim that was incredibly offensive to Israelites and to others of the day. That's why they were trying to kill him. Paul is saying, Jesus, a human being, is the Lord, the God of Israel, the creator, redeemer God, the one and only God. And many people think of Jesus as, as this really great moral teacher. He has these good things we should follow. or He's, he's kind of an interesting cultural figure. But Paul is saying, one day everyone will know the truth. That he really is God. This scene of exaltation that Paul is describing, it's not just some spiritual metaphor like happens in our hearts. Just as Jesus really in history became man and was crucified on a cross, Jesus really will one day in history come back 
not as a lamb, but as a lion, his authority rather than his vulnerability will be on full display in his second coming. And even now, we, we've seen taste of that in his resurrection, in his ascension, the first fruits of this exaltation that we are waiting the consummation of. Why is this important? Why, why does it matter so much that we hear that Jesus will be exalted? Because it guarantees that humility really is the way to life and really is the way to true power. If, if Paul had just stopped at verse 8, we might as well have just concluded, well, I guess I should just kind of get all the power I can and, and squeeze as much pleasure and self-glory out of life as I can. Like if it just ended with Jesus dying on the cross, we might wonder, is, is that the guy we really want to be following? If Jesus didn't grasp onto power, but then at the end of the day, the powerful crushed him, we might rightly ask, what is it worth following Jesus? But that's not the story scripture tells us. Instead, the story that's echoing throughout the Bible and is summarized here is that the Son of God, though he came and was humiliated and was pierced for our transgressions, he will be exalted. Jesus' exaltation just says loud and clear, the way up truly is down. The way to greatness really is to dying to yourself. Yeah, once I read this story that has stuck with me for a long time uh, about this missionary in the mid-1800s. His name was Joseph Damien, and he served in Hawaii. Talk about like a sweet missionary gig. I'll sign up for that. Uh, however, as, as nice as the scenery might have been there in Hawaii, uh, the situation he was in was not great. Damien served on this island of Molokai, which was a leper colony. And uh, there, there's a pastor, John Leonard, who writes about this story in his book. And he says, uh, when leprosy arrived in the Hawaiian islands, those who contracted it were treated cruel, cruelly. And if you don't know anything about leprosy, like this is a very deadly, very contagious, communicable skin disease um, that basically slowly kills you. But anyway, uh, these... These lepers, they were treated cruelly. They were rounded up. They were dumped on the island of, of Molokai on a sandbar that uh, basically formed this natural prison with the ocean on one side and the mountains on the other. And the crews on the ships that carried the lepers over uh, would make them jump into the ocean and swim ashore, and then they would just like throw their belongings in overboard after them. And the doctors that would come and visit them would, would examine them from across the room and they would leave the medicine on the table and they basically just make them wait uh, till they left for the, the leopard to actually come and get it. And when Joseph Damien arrived there, he found just a whole group of people that were simply just waiting to die. They were just without hope. And he washed and he bandaged their wounds. And he built a church and he started a choir and he helped them plant gardens and he served with them faithfully for years. And one morning when he was preparing his morning cup of tea, he spilled some hot water on his toes, but he felt nothing. And then he took the teapot and he just poured more of the hot water on his feet and there was still no sensation. And he had worked long enough with lepers to know what was going on. 
And that morning, he addressed his people with these words, We lepers. At that moment, his congregation understood the work of Christ in a brand new way. They could understand how God loved them so much that he sent his son to bear their infirmities and to take on their sickness so that they might be made well. And the interesting outcome of this is in the statuary hall of the House of Representatives, each state basically has the right to choose two statues that they think these people represent the ideals of our state. These are, these are our people. And, and Hawaii sent two statues. The first statue was of a Hawaiian king who was believed to be divine and that he descended from the gods and from heaven. But the second statue was the missionary Joseph Damien, in whom they saw the divine at work by stepping down into sin and sickness and suffering of mankind. I think if we're really honest, we, there's some part in all of us that would love to be remembered like that. We want to be great. We want our lives to matter and have consequence and weight. We, we want our statue, maybe figuratively speaking, to be somewhere in, in the House of Representatives. It, even the most introverted of us, I think, would at least shyly smile at some kind of recognition like that. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that desire. There's nothing wrong with pursuing excellence and wanting to be great. We're made for greatness. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We're made to reflect the glory of this God who is the greatest being in the universe, the source of all that is good and true and beautiful. But the question is, what is true greatness? And how do we get there? And in Jesus, in his humiliation and his exaltation, he shows us the way to true greatness. He shows us what it is. It is through serving others and becoming vulnerable. The way you get a statue that will last not only here on earth, but into eternity is not through climbing the social ladder, through a perfect score on the MCAT, through making it to the top of your career career field. That exaltation you're longing for it is found through living a life of humility and self-forgetfulness that comes through knowing Jesus. It's a greatness. Greatness really is Jesus' personal work, his story shining through us. And it's that mindset that will, will totally change our community and make us live this beautiful, humble life. Um, but of course, the only way that, that Joseph Damien was able to do this, the only way that we could is because he knew on an even deeper level that Jesus had made an even greater sacrifice for him, that Jesus had entered into his world and become contaminated, and that his contamination eventually killed him. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. His death on the cross frees us from our sin and our pride, and his resurrection promises that one day the exaltation will happen. We will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth, a new world where the servant is the king. Let me close us in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you that you sent your son to be made in the likeness of men 
and to come and be a servant and to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. We confess that often we are flying in the opposite direction. We do not want to step down the ladder. We want to keep climbing it. We're so fearful of being put in a position that feels low and feels vulnerable and feels insignificant. Help us to see that that's where you are, that we don't need to be afraid of that, and that even there in that context, we can find true greatness um, through Christ dwelling in us by the Spirit. We pray uh, you would give everyone here wisdom for how that looks in their lives, uh, in their week ahead, uh, in their future careers, in their friendships. Pray you do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.